You know, um, three years ago, or three years or so ago, Sham had a knee operation, uh, a, a replacement. And on the third day when the uh, surgeon discharged us, he kind of read the riot act to her. He said, you got six weeks in which to recover your flexibility. That's it. After that, no matter what you do, it's over. There's that narrow window of time. There were no options. There was no escape clause. There was no special dispensations. This is the way it is, so get busy. She did, and she's been enjoying the benefits of that ever since. I was thinking of that as we begin this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning we're going to talk about love. Actually, the fruit is in the singular, which basically means we're talking only about one fruit. Uh, Probably all manifestations of love. And God kind of reads the riot act to us when it comes to the question of love. For example, here are a few verses. Matthew 22 from Jesus' words, and he ought to know. And he, Jesus, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus said, if you want to summarize the entire Bible, it's summarized in two commandments to love. To love God and to love one another. Well, we just continue. For example, in John chapter 13, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The one incontrovertible evidence of the fact that we are disciples of Jesus is that we are actually loving one another. Then it is stated negatively. For example, in John in his letter, Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. Now that's categorical, folks. It doesn't matter how how emphatically or vehemently we may protest, yeah, I love God and I love Jesus. He said, but you don't love one another. You don't love God. One John 4.21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And the word Adelpha is brother or sister. So, there's the force of the word must. It's not optional. The two go together. You don't have one, you don't have the other. Then in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. Circumcision and uncircumcision were religious terms. They were first century marks of visible marks of either belonging to the community of Israel or not. So they were really religious terms. And if I were to rephrase them in today's language. Galatians would read something like this. Don't impress me with your religiosity. I don't really care what your external trappings of religion are. Or what you say. The only thing that counts in your life is love that comes from faith in God. I mean you can't get more exclusive than that can you? And if you are in doubt at all, look at 1 Corinthians 13, not the text on love which we will come to, but the introduction. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's the first thing I read this past week. That the most eloquent preaching, the most theologically accurate preaching, if it is not accompanied with love, is just a noisy gong, that's all it is. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith, all faith, if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Even miracle working faith without love, he said, is absolutely nothing. If I give away all I have, voluntary poverty, if I deliver up my body to be burned, martyrdom, 
but have nothing, but have not love, I gain nothing. And if you want to know whether martyrdom is possible without love, we're living in that world these days. Suicide bombers, left, right and center, hate the people that they kill. So I am a noisy nothing without love, is what it's all about. Now you put all of this together, do you see why it sounds like the riot act? You don't have this, you might as well forget about everything else. That shows us how crucial and how important it is to learn to understand what love is all about. So I want to give you a couple of suggestions right off the bat on how to make this both practical and relevant. For relevancy, I want you to think about just one or two key relationships in your life. Yeah, we're supposed to love everybody like this, but that's too big a task. Think of one or two relationships. If you're married, that obviously has to include your spouse. And maybe one other person. And I want you to look at everything that I say the rest of this morning in terms of those relationships. Maybe it's a colleague at work if you're you're not married. Maybe it's a, a, a sibling. Maybe it's somebody in this church. A neighbor. I don't know. Whatever God brings to mind. But think of those one or two relationships. And then secondly, as we're going to be unpacking the many dimensions of love... Again, that can become overwhelming too. Even if it's one or two people, I've got to do all these things? No, I want you to listen to what the Spirit says. We press prayed for the Spirit to come in. Let Him put His finger on one or two dimensions of that love. That's all I want you to do. So think about one or two relationships and one or two dimensions of love. That's all you got. That's your goal for today. One or two people, one or two dimensions of love, and I'm going to put that into practice. Listen, I want to tell you something off the bat. One aspect of love practiced is of more value than intellectual mastery of this whole sermon. One act of love practiced is more important than intellectually mastering this entire sermon. Okay, That's the perspective with which I want you to listen. Well, of course, our starting point is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Let me just read a few of those verses. Don't worry about the colors and all. I'll come back to you there. They are there for a purpose. Otherwise, they're normally distracting. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, of course, the, you don't really need a sermon on this stuff. This, the words are mostly plain. I want to just make a few comments on some aspects of it that may not be obvious. But then I want to really focus on some things that struck me that are probably not obvious at all. Well, first of all, briefly, love is patience. Patience had to do with, the word has to do with slowness of anger. It also extends to being in a position where you can get back at somebody. Revenge in some way, but you don't do it. Those are some of the ideas of patience. Kindness is pleasant rather than harsh. It, it also has to do with proving useful. The, 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 one of the root meanings of the, of the word underlying it has to do with making yourself useful. So from where we get acts of kindness, like for example, this past Thursday, I dropped Pastor Chris off at the airport and he loaned me the use of his car. But that was kind enough. But on the Thursday morning, he sent a text to me saying, hey, since you're going to take my car, do you want me to swing by your house, pick you up? That's an example of an act of kindness. Envy has to do with uh, jealousy. It's usually because the other person that we envy either has or is something that we would like to have or be. Envy worked out in practice usually looks like an attempt to pull the other person down to diminish them in some way and make yourself feel a little bit better. You can do that by spreading rumors. You can do that by discounting the value of what they do. Those are all examples of envy. 
That's the negative. These are negative examples of love. This is what love doesn't do. Uh, boasting and arrogance kind of go together. This is the other side. If envy pulls people down, boasting and arrogance puff yourself up. In fact, the meaning behind the word translated arrogant is in fact puffing up or inflation. It's an inaccurate estimate of yourself. Rudeness is basically indecent, unpleasant behavior. The mildest forms of rudeness are interrupting people, cutting them off. And it's not hard to imagine much more worse forms of rudeness as well. Because we met people like that. Maybe we are ourselves at times like that. It does not insist on its own way. The more literal translation of the original is it's not self-seeking. It's the my way or the highway attitude. And both envy and boasting can feed into it, right? You can make their way less by minimizing it. You can puff your own way up and make it more important. Envy and boasting both feed that insistence on my own way. Irritable. It simply means easily stirred up. Very quickly provoked. Its relationship to patience is obvious. Patience is slowness to anger. The next three kind of go together. Resentful does not rejoice in the truth and wrongdoing. The underlying idea behind the word resentful is based on a word that involves keeping track. Um, it's an accounting term, keeping track of something. So the resentful person is someone who keeps track of the other person doing the wrong things that they do. And then, actually even rejoicing in it. Boy, when I catch them at doing something wrong, when they fail in some way, I'm not going to let them escape that. I want to make sure I shine the spotlight upon it. The other side of it, the positive expression is, it doesn't do that. It actually rejoices at what is good. It keeps track of what is good. Bruce Wilkinson, a master teacher himself, in a very memorable seminar that I attended many years ago called The Seven Laws of the Learner, talked about this once. He, he had a, a mother of a teenager come to him. And by the way, remember, anecdotes and stories, while true in that case, are not automatic formulas for life. But they do help us to get ideas. So receive it in that way. Uh, a mother of a 14-year-old boy came to him and she was, he was disobedient, he was difficult, and she pointed out a whole litany of things that he wasn't doing. So Bruce wisely asked her, do you like anything about him? She said, yes, of course. So he said, here's an assignment for you. Get a journal and for one month record in it everything that this boy does that, that is good, that you like. And sit him down at the end of that month and read the whole thing out to him. Well, the, the mother did. And it was an electrifying experience with that boy. He broke down, he wept, and he was a different boy from that time on. That's the power of keeping track of the good things. Subsequently to that, I used it in two marriage enrichment situations where I asked husbands who were having real trouble to actually do this for a month with their wives. Again, the effect was no less startling than that. So those three kind of things go together. I'm not going to keep track. I'm not going to rejoice in the bad stuff and make a big deal of it. I want to actually deliberately focus on that which is good and let the person know. Then bearing all things. It's not just heavy load. The idea behind the original word is covering something over by silence. <laughs> you see how relevant that is? It means you don't... Take advantage of somebody in public and scoring points of them by letting somebody know something about them. We do that sometimes, don't we? We get a laugh 
at the expense of somebody else by exposing something about them in public. And, and we often can do this also by attempting to win an argument in public that we lost in private. We bring it up in the presence of other people who might take our side on it and expose the other person as a loser. These are all examples of refusing to do them are bearing, covering over with silence is bad. Then believing all things and hoping all things. These are orientations of belief rather than skepticism. So when someone says something, this is what I'm planning to do, this is what I'm hoping to do, you don't kind of roll your eyes in disbelief. Oh yeah, here we go again. But you actually believe and expect that they will do it. Again, going back to Wilkinson's seminar, he told another amazing story on the power of this kind of positive believing and hoping and expectation. In his first year, he was teaching at Multnomah School of the Bible and he was teaching Bible, and the freshman classes used to be divided into three groups, A, B, and C. The A groups were the best students, and the B not so good, and the C were the difficult ones. And so Wilkinson had these three classes assigned to him, and he was really enjoying his teaching. And exactly as he expected, the A group was doing outstanding, the B group was middling, and the C group were not doing very well at all. Halfway through, he was walking along the school quadrangle when the dean came to him and said, So, Bruce, how are you enjoying your first year of teaching? He said, Oh, great, I'm particularly loving the A group. So the dean said, What do you mean? He said, You know, those three groups that the freshmen are divided into. He said, We stopped doing that this year. He said, All your three groups are identical. Isn't that amazing? He was teaching identical material to three identical groups. Yet because of expectations, unstated expectations, mind you, they were being real. That's the power. That's the power of believing and hoping things that are good. And then finally, the last word, enduring all things, is just long-term patience. You have to do all of this and not do all of this forever and ever and ever. Because it takes a long, long time, both to learn and to communicate. So those are some of the dimensions of loving. They have very little to do with all this gushy business of I'm in love and I'm not in love and I've fallen out of love and we're, we are growing out of love and all this kind of stuff that this world talks about. There's none of that stuff in here. This is love demystified. But now I want to get to the colors. What are they all doing there? You'll notice all the green ones are, are negative dimensions of love. They are what love doesn't do. The yellow ones are all the ones that are positive. But the underlined ones, you'll notice, are internal. Even the ones that are positive are internal. So that, for example, if I bear all things, that's covering it over with silence. Nobody knows I'm doing it. So you get into this peculiar situation. And this is what struck me new. I'd never seen it before in this text that I know quite well. Is that... 12 or 13 out of these 14 expressions of love are not obvious. Like the negative ones are not obvious. If you say something that irritates me, but I refuse to get irritated, I'm loving Susanna, but she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that she actually irritated me and I actually chose not to express it. Same thing with bearing all things. If I could expose her and have some fun at her expense, but refuse to do it, she doesn't know that I had that temptation and refused to do it. So all the negative ones are not obvious to the other person, although they are absolutely crucial. Most of the positive ones are exactly the same thing as well. If you look at, for example, uh, patience. That's just refusal to be stirred up very quickly. So if I don't get stirred up in anger very quickly, I'm being patient, but the other person doesn't know that. So we are in this peculiar situation. Same thing with believing and hoping. They are internal. 
So by far the vast majority of this amazing list of love are things that the other person doesn't know that they are being loved. Kindness is almost the only thing. And, and this morning it occurred to me that if you're being kite by doing secret acts of service, even that's unknown to the people. So isn't that amazing that this amazing passage that we are called to be loving is doing things or not doing things that a loved person doesn't even know is happening. That's what makes it so difficult. You can so easily be taken advantage of. Or granted, you will be loving and no one will ever say to you, hey, thank you for being so loving. I think it kind of oozes out if you're around this person for a long period of time to have someone who lives like this or doesn't. So where's the motivation for this then? Where's the motivation for living and loving like this by both the negative and the positives when it is largely not noticed and therefore not reinforced at the horizontal level? We want to go back to one of the verses we talked about earlier. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working to love. There is one person who sees and knows and that's God. And it's, he's the one who says to us, this is the life worth living. <laughs> this counts, believe me. This is the sustaining and enduring motivation. So I don't need to write my own one-liner. This is our one-liner for today. I've just recasted. The only thing in life that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That's why faith, you said, why faith? It's precisely for this reason that so many dimensions of this love are unnoticed by the other person. And so you have to have a massive amount of faith to believe that this is truly important in the eyes of God. So can you say that with me? The only thing in life that counts is faith expressing itself in love. One more time. The only thing in life that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Okay, so we want to drive this home. I want you to think of those one or two relationships that I talked about, that I asked you to think about. And hopefully there were one or two dimensions of this list of 14 that touched you. Something on the, something on the negative side, what love will not do. And something on the positive side, although internal, what love will do. So you got them? You got a couple of things in your mind? Now here's the important thing. Tell the other person. If you're able to do it, if it's a spouse, you should have the opportunity. If it's somebody else, tell them. Tell the other person, this is what God spoke to me about today, about our relationship. These are one or two ways in which I want to either start or continue loving you. That's the hard part, right? Oh, I don't want to let them know. What if I fail? This is faith expressing itself in love. So tell them. And one more thing that's crucial, ask them if you got it right. (laughs) Because more often than not, when it comes to loving people, we love people the way we think they need to be loved, not the way they want to be loved. And so you might get the list right. If you've been married for quite a while, you'll probably get the list right. But if you're not, you may not. And so let them look at the list and say, you know, okay, I don't want you to choose that. I want you to love me this way. Well, just listen to it and get it from them. So one or two relationships, one or two ways of loving. Okay, that's our goal for today. Now, normally when I started this message of thinking about it for weeks, I thought, okay, by the time when I finish 1 Corinthians 13, I'm done. That's the last word on love, isn't it? But this past week as I was working my way through Beth Moore's book, uh, uh, she had to do an interesting exercise that the Holy Spirit really gripped my heart with and gave me some dimensions of loving that I'd never thought about before. She said, if any one of you ever doubts that Jesus really loves you, Read his prayer for you in John chapter 17. For those of you not familiar with the gospel, that is a prayer that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross. I did. Because she said, don't do it quickly. So I shut down my books, I opened up John 17, and I just carefully read Jesus' prayer for me 
Man was my heart moved. I saw love in a way that I normally don't associate with love. And you know, it helped me think of it in terms of a congregation. Uh, pastors are supposed to love their congregation. And I do, and I've told you that periodically. But here's the question. If I did all the things that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, you wouldn't know it, right? For all the reasons that I mentioned, half of the list is negative, and most of the rest are internal. So even if I did all of those things for these 35 years, and I by no means have been perfect, you're not in a position to know whether I really loved you or not. And as for acts of kindness, I don't interact with this many lives on any regular basis to do acts of kindness, for, except maybe one or two or three people. So here, you're in the, so this is where my mind went. I'm in this peculiar position of having been to, called to love a congregation for 35 years, and if you ask them, at least according to this slate, they'd not be in any way to give an accurate answer. But when I read this prayer of Jesus, I got a completely different picture. So work with me on this one. 1 John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. So it is about love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Now what does it mean to lay down our life for somebody else? Or that Jesus laid down his life for us? Well, one dimension of it is obvious. He died on the cross for us. He literally laid down his life. Now, we're not asked to be crucified for one another. But it is possible in some cases... To take a bullet for somebody else, literally. The only problem with that is you can only do that once. You, you, don't, you can only do that once. Is it possible that there is another dimension to laying down your life that is richer and broader, that doesn't refer just to one particular supreme act? And even in Jesus' case, what if it referred to his entire life with his disciples that he loved? I mean, he spent three years with them, loving them, laying down his entire life for them. And if you look at it that way, then you see there are some other dimensions to loving that build on 1 Corinthians. They don't nullify 1 Corinthians 13, they build on it. So you look at John 17, here are some of the ways in which Jesus, what did it mean for him to lay down his life for us? I've only highlighted the verbs in that passage, read the whole prayer sometime. I have manifested, this is Jesus praying to the Father. And he reveals his heart of love for his people. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. I have given them the word that you gave me. I am praying for them. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them. I have given them your word. That's twice he says that. And for their sake, I consecrate myself or set myself apart that they may be sanctified in the truth. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. You put that list together, this is what laying down his life meant. And you see taken together whether that's a demonstration of love or not. First of all, he manifested God's name to us. In the original meaning, the word manifest is a sudden revelation. Like if I brought a plate which was fully covered with something in it, and you couldn't see what was underneath that lid, and I suddenly lifted that lid and you could immediately see what was in it, I have manifested something to you. So Jesus was the manifestation of the invisible. The invisible suddenly became visible. Who's the invisible? God. Who's the visible? Jesus. Jesus was the one who made the invisible God visible to us. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's the essence of it. So there's that revelation of the Father in the person of Jesus. Because the name of God, I have manifested God's name. Then God's name is God's character. Who God is, how God acts. And Jesus said, I, this is who God is like. This is how God acts. 
So he manifested his name to us. That was an act of love. Then he says, he gave us the word that the Father gave him. This is the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. Notice how in John he says, the Son does nothing except what he sees the Father do. The sons, the words that I am speaking, the Father is speaking. So he regularly went to God and he taught us what he learned from the Father. That was an act of his laying down his life for us. Then he says he kept and guarded us. He protected his disciples. He protected them from error. He not only taught them the truth, he also taught them what was error to avoid. He warned them about Satan's tactics. And he even impersonally battled the enemy as a, as a human being to win the tempta- against the temptations of the enemy. So he kept and he guarded his people. Then he says he consecrated himself for our sake. He set himself apart. This is what he came for. He, he said my entire life has been set apart for this purpose. To do all these things for my disciples. And John 17 he defines disciples not only as his original group of 12. But everybody who believes because of the meaning you and me sitting here today. He loved us like this. And then it says he gave us the glory the father gave. Now this is a little bit more difficult. I had to think about it for a while. Now. Part of the meaning of the word glory is, is, the, is the radiance, the radiance of God's perfections. This is when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and Peter, James and John suddenly saw him shining. That was that intrinsic glory of God. He can't give that to us. That's uniquely his. Our glory is only reflected glory. It's never intrinsic glory. So in what sense did God, Jesus, give us the glory that the Father gave him? Here's one thought that occurred to me because the context says so that they may be one. So it has something to do with the people being one. The word translated glory in the Greek comes from the word doxa. The doxa also means opinion. We use it that way, for example, when we say orthodox, which means a straight opinion. Heterodox, which means a different opinion. Paradox, which means two opinions. So glory is also doxa or opinion. Part of the glory of God that he gave to Jesus was the opinion he expressed about Jesus when he said, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was the father's relationship to the son. Now if you look at it that way, that is the glory he did give to us. He, he said, He is the firstborn. You and I are his brothers and sisters. We have the same father. God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. All this is taught in the scriptures. And so our oneness is oneness as brothers and sisters with the same father. So that's an idea that makes sense to me in the context. So he loved us that way as well. By giving us the glory to become sons and daughters. In fact in Hebrews it says it's pleased Jesus in bringing many sons to glory. To make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I think that's the main idea here that seems to harmonize with the text. And then he continues to make God's name known to us. Now how is this different from the first statement? He manifested God. It's a different word. It's not the word for sudden revelation. It's the word dinosco which has to do with our minds. In other words, Jesus not only revealed the Father to us in his totality, in his life. In an integrated fashion. But he also taught us about God. So we not only see, but we understand what we see. If I can give you a simple illustration. On a sunny day, let's say the clouds have suddenly obscured the sun. And then the cloud move by, and you suddenly see the sun. That's that first kind, the manifestation. We know it, we feel it, we can feel the warmth, we see the brilliance, we see everything by it. That's all instantaneous. We don't know why that's happening, but we know that it is. That's the manifestation. But if we had a nuclear scientist standing next to us, he could say, let me tell you why it's suddenly so bright. He can explain to us about fusion, 
how hydrogen atoms fuse together to form helium and release a huge amounts of energy. Now we understand with our minds what we already felt. That's what he's saying. I not only revealed the Father, made him known to him, I also continue to instruct them and teach them so they will understand what they believe. This is the ministry of Jesus to our mind and to our hearts. And then comes the best gift of all. He says, I prayed for them. And he's continuing to pray for us. Is that awesome? What a list. You want to know whether God loves you? This is how he loves you. But he also says in the text, we also ought to lay down our lives for another. Which means this is the way we love people. And you know, it came to me as a great encouragement because in a sense, this is what I've done for the last 35 years. <laughs> if I put this text together, suppose I were able to say to you, I am patient and kind. I don't envy, boast, insist on my own way, rejoice at wrongdoing. I'm not arrogant, rude, irritable or resentful. And I rejoice with the truth, bear, believe, hope, and endure all things. I don't mean this perfectly. I mean in my, largely in my relationship with you, they're probably true to a large extent. But you wouldn't know most of them. But what if I said this, which is also true. I have attempted to reveal God to you so you can both see and understand Him and know that He loves you as much as He loves Jesus. I have taught the Word God, I have protected you from error, and I have prayed for you, and I pray for you every day. And I have made... This is my life's mission. That would be true too. Now here's a question for you. If you could only choose one of them, which one would you choose? <laughs> kind of a no-brainer, right? Because the left one is, ah, it's okay, but the right one, it's important. See how rich this is? I didn't realize this before. So we love this way too. Not only do we love with the negatives of 1 Corinthians 13 and the positive internals of 1 Corinthians 13, but we also love other people by laying down our lives for them. Which means this are some of the things you can do. And it doesn't mean you've got to do it to a congregation of a thousand. Lay pastors can do it for the eight or nine or ten people that are under their care. Someone doing a triad can do it with the two people they are mentoring with. Someone who is mentoring somebody one-on-one can do that with that one person. Someone can take a new believer under their wing, maybe at work, or someone in the neighborhood, and you can do exactly the same. It's not the size that matters. It's the content of loving. And you can do exactly the same thing. First of all, you could consecrate yourself to serve them. You could say, I am setting myself apart. This is one of the reasons I exist. I exist to do these things. This is what I do. And you know, it's interesting. I read books a lot. I have, I'm in, involved in sacred conversations with people. There's a part of my mind that is labeled Rexdale Alliance Church. <laughs> no matter what I'm reading, what conversations I'm in, I'm always thinking, how can this bless our people? How can I use this to bless the people of God? That's the, that's, so that's, that's the mindset. Only you're not thinking of 1,000, you're thinking of one or two or three. Consecrating yourself to serve them. Teaching them God's word. So you're going to read and study God's word, first of all for yourself. It's bread. But bread is going to become seed to sow in somebody else's life as well. And so that's another way of loving. Thirdly, protecting them from error and from Satan's tactics. You not only work with this person to teach them what is right, you also help them to see the errors and the lies that are going on all around us. And the newspapers are full of them all the time. You know. And you learn that. And then you teach them that. And then from Satan's tactics, you're aware of how the enemy is to attack them. Warn them of the particular vulnerabilities that they may have to the enemy. Uh, Of course, praying for them. Jesus loved us by praying for us. So one of the things you do is to pray for this person. And sometimes let them know that you prayed for them. Because I find that when I am praying for people, God gives me insights into the word of God that I wouldn't have otherwise. Because I'm now getting into the habit of writing to them immediately after and say, Hey, today I prayed for you. This is what God showed me from the word of God for you. 
I've never had one of them come back and say, stop sending these emails. You know. <laughs> Helping them know that they are God's beloved children. What a gift we can give to people. It's not entirely up to us, but certainly as we can reinforce the fact, listen, God loves you. Sometimes we need another human being with skin on to say to you and me, God loves you. And I want to take you into the presence of that loving God. I want to bless you with the love of God. Those are ways in which we give the glory that God gave us, we give to them. That they are sons and daughters of God. And then revealing God to them by passionately pursuing God and His glory through your worship and obedience. Because then you are communicating to them, hey, my God is worth This is how much my God is worth And I want to model that kind of a life for you. Those are some of the things that occurred to me. See how much richer love can be. Not only those intangibles which are absolutely crucial from 1 Corinthians 13. But these much more visible concrete realities that have very little necessarily to do with those gushy emotions. It has to do with actions that we're doing on behalf of them. Love, this is another very useful definition of love, by the way. Love is deliberately stretching yourself or consecrating yourself for the lasting good of somebody else. Love is a deliberate stretching or consecrating of myself for the lasting good, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, of another person. You tracking with me so far? So now I want you to go back to that relationship, one or two relationships that you picked out. And you've already got one positive and one negative dimension of love picked out. You're going to talk to them about Pick one from this list. What can you do in terms of laying down your life for this person? That Jesus' life gives us a clue. What one of these six or seven things can you say to this person? I also want to love you in this way. This is what I'm going to be doing for you, for you from now on. So just kind of flesh that out a little bit. One last thing as we draw our message to a close. which is absolutely crucial. You understand what love is. How are you going to pull it off? <laughs> Where's the power to love? One of the things Paul prayed for often for his disciples was they would have power to love. To love this way requires power that is outside of us. And so, let me finish with that. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. We can only love in response to God's love. And Jesus said the same thing when he talked about fruit bearing in John 15. Those of you who were here a few weeks ago when we looked at John 15. When he said, the branches have to abide in the vine if they're going to bear fruit. And you bring glory to me by bearing fruit. And the first one we're looking at is love. Uh, which is really all of the rest of them in disguise. And so basically Jesus is saying to us, you can't bear the fruit of love without abiding in me. The branches, you and I, have absolutely no power to bear fruit. The fruit-bearing power is in the vine, which is Jesus. And remember one of the things we learned from John 15, that our focus needs to be not on fruit-bearing, our focus needs to be on ensuring the organic connection with Jesus, by abiding with Him. And so, we can only love in response to the Father's love, we can only love as we are united to Jesus in His love for us. And so... Before you talk to your beloved, whoever that is, whoever the names that God has brought to your mind, and you need to, or I'm encouraging you to, you need to go to Jesus first. <laughs> I, probably you need to go to him every day. For the last week or two weeks, this is one of the things I've been practicing. As soon as I get up first thing in the morning, is to invite the Holy Spirit into my life. Specifically, I didn't know that Susanna was going to be giving us the same message today. And specifically about love. This day, Spirit of God, you know, 
Let the vine, Jesus, flow through me so that I may do something that I... Why? Because the only thing that counts is what? Faith expressing itself in love. And in a group this large, there might be a few people. I don't know how many. I don't know a lot of you that intimately. There might be some of you here who have never actually begun this journey with Jesus. So this whole journey of love has got to start for you for the first time. By getting connected with Jesus for the very first time. His supreme demonstration of laying down his life for you was to die on the cross. And that death on the cross was what frees a holy God. And we sang about the holy one earlier on. It is Jesus' death on the cross that allows a holy God to love us in this way. To love us as much as he loves Jesus. And so if there's even one or two or three of you who say, this is great, I'd love to live a life like this. But I've never begun this journey of love. We'd just love the opportunity. Talk to any one of us. Charles is here. Some of our elders are here. Pastoral staff members are here. Worship team members are here. We would be willing and absolutely delighted if you would give us the opportunity to help you on this journey of learning to love. I want to bless you with faith. Faith in invisible reality. May Jesus continue to make the invisible God visible to you. May he instruct your mind. May faith well up within your heart. And may you commit to living a life of love. Go in Jesus' name.